0: Welcome to The Big Unlock Podcast, your leading source of info for insights and best practices in digital health and digital transformation. Join host Patty Padmanabhan, CEO of Demo Consulting and co-author of Healthcare Digital Transformation, how technology, consumerism, and pandemic are accelerating the future, in conversation with leading practitioners of healthcare and technology. Hello again, and welcome back to this episode of The Big Unlock Podcast. My special guest today is Paula Tariki, Chief Strategy Officer at the Parkland Community Health Plan in Dallas, Texas. Paula manages a fascinating business that serves Medicaid population in uh, North Texas. And she talks about how they are using digital engagement tools and technologies with their members to really improve the quality of care and to improve healthcare outcomes. She talks about her fascinating work with uh, data and analytics programs with a sister organization, PCCI, who has also been on this podcast. But anyway, we'll get on with the conversation and let you listen to what she has to say. And before we get started, a quick shout out to our generous sponsors and partners, BeWell. I am thrilled to be here with uh, Paula Tariki, Chief Strategy Officer at Parkland Community Health Plan. Paula, thank you so much for setting aside your time and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: It's wonderful to have you. So why don't we start, you could tell us a little bit about Parkland Community Health Plan, you know, part of the overall Parkland uh, Healthcare community in Dallas, Texas. Tell us a little bit about the health plan and uh, what your role entails. Uh, You're the chief strategy officer at uh, the health
1: plan. So we are a very large system, and most people know Parkland because it is the hospital where JFK was brought, and so most folks are familiar with that way back in 1963. Uh, Since that time, Parkland has grown tremendously. We have the main hospital, plus many community clinics, school-based clinics, Lots of really great specialty programs, one of the largest maternity services in the country, a very large burn center, trauma center. So it's just a really sophisticated care institution. Part of the system includes the Parkland Community Health Plan. And we have been in a service to our community since the late 90s. And we have a contract with the state of Texas to administer Medicaid benefits. Through the STAR, CHIP, and CHIP Perinate programs. And so, unlike Parkland Hospital, which serves Dallas County, we serve a seven county area in the North Texas community. And so, we partner with about 35 hospital systems plus about 6,000 providers in our network to take care of our members. And we have about 220,000 members in the North Texas area. So we provide their benefits, we ensure that they get access to care, we partner with many community organizations to make sure that we're meeting social determinants of health and really serving the community through our health plan as well as through the system. And then as the chief strategy officer, I've been helping our health plan kind of design our path for for the future. We started out as a very small plan When I joined the plan about two and a half years ago, we were really more of a vendor management type of health plan. We had outsourced all of our activities primarily and really only had about 15 employees in our health plan. And so we had contracts with a third-party administrator and many others to do the work of the health plan. And when our new CEO, John Wendling, came on board in 2019, he said, you know, I really want to be... In charge of the service we provide. I really want to be connected to the members. I want to be connected to our provider network. And I really want to be the plan of choice. And so the best way for us to do that is to take on responsibility for that service directly. So we've spent the last year transitioning away from our third-party administrator and bringing many of those services in-house and being responsible for that administration of the benefits ourselves. And so really my role has been trying to create that path forward, taking John's vision and creating strategic documents and work plans and action plans along with the leaders throughout the organization to really fulfill on our mission, vision and values and our our goals to be the plan of choice.
0: Thank you, that's actually very interesting background. First of all, thank you for that Historic trivia. Most of us may not even remember that particular incident and the location. And I've actually been to the to the exact location from where the assassin took the shot, and it's now turned into a museum. It's a fascinating place for those who haven't been there. It's a one of one of a kind exhibit. Indeed. Well, let's talk about your. You started talking about some of your priorities. It's actually a fascinating piece of. Uh, information that you ran such a large health system with just 15 full-time employees and everything was outsourced. So is it fair to say, therefore, that you're now trying to reverse that and bring more of it in-house and try to have more control over your resources and directly influence the quality of the services that you provide? Is that part of your big mandate?
1: Yes, so especially for the health plan specifically. So Parkland, the system, has about 16,000 employees and a huge service. But the health plan was almost a department of the hospital and really not even considered a separate organization. And so we really have tried to mature the health plan as a related but a different organization with a different set of priorities and a different set of stakeholders. Because certainly if you're at the hospital, at the center is the patient. And so our focus as a health plan is the member, the provider, and then also our state agencies. Because since our contract is with the state of Texas, we wanna make sure that we are following the state's priorities and their strategic mission for the Medicaid programs, STAR, CHIP, Chip, CHIP-Pyranet programs. And so really kind of aligning our priorities with their priorities. And we thought the best way to do that was to really become more responsible and more responsive directly as opposed to indirectly. And so kind of looking at all of those services that we are responsible for in our contract and determining the best way to do that in the most responsible way.
0: Now, you're serving a, largely a Medicaid population, low-income population. In the last couple of years, how have the needs for this population changed and how has that in turn impacted your own strategic direction and your priorities? And as I understand it, you started down this path of this new strategic focus on insourcing everything and, dele- and of course, the last couple of years have been very different. How has this impacted your uh, population's needs and influenced your own strategic choices?
1: The changes that have taken place over the last two years during the global pandemic have been very dramatic. We have seen a huge shift and almost an an immediate shift to digital options, whereas we were very reliant on in-person healthcare and our members were very used to going to the doctor our physicians were very used to having patients in their offices and so this dramatic shift to digital options has been rapid and i think very exciting i think that everybody's been surprised at the the way folks have embraced it as well you know there was always some trepidation you know like oh, i don't think our Members will use it. I don't think our patients will use it, but we really have seen this dramatic acceptance of the digital options. We've also seen a lot of social determinants of health, needs for housing, food, different sorts of social services as the pandemic you know, kind of morphed and changed how people were working, whether they were working or not, whether they had transportation. Now we're seeing a lot of requests for rides um, because gas prices are so high. A lot of folks are calling and saying that they can't afford the gas that it takes to get to the doctor or to get to an appointment that they have to fill out their applications or that type of thing. And so they're, they're requesting help with transportation a lot more these days. So we're seeing these shifts in the different types of social needs that our members have and then we're trying to very quickly respond to those to meet their needs and to make it easy for them to access those services.
0: So one thing I must comment is that, uh, and, and it's, it's so remarkable that you say uh, that you, you made some assumptions about your population, about whether they're going to accept digital and turned out that they were far more accepting of digital options than you thought they were. And this, I hear this consistently when I talk to other healthcare executives, All the assumptions that have been made about whether it's low income or high income, whether it is older population, younger population, those assumptions need to be reviewed very carefully because those assumptions may be wrong. And so that's what it it seems like is happening. But let's drill into that a little bit. You talked about ride shares and enabling ride shares through mobile apps. What kind of digital enablement have you invested in in response to this? To the last couple of years and the emerging demand from your patient. Can you talk to us about a few of the important ones
1: from your Sure.
0: Yeah.
1: One I think that has been a great success is using an app called Pix. And it was originally developed to combat loneliness in an older population. And when we were approached by PIX and we started to talk with them about their app we said, well, is it possible that we could kind of change the focus of this for our membership population? Because we serve primarily pregnant women and children. And so my history and my career was spent mostly in the women's and children's arena. And so I said, oftentimes, just after delivery, women are somewhat isolated, and they may not have the opportunity to interact with You know, friends and family as much as they normally would, or, you know, during their prenatal period. And so, is it possible that we could use your app to combat loneliness in the postpartum period for women? And it turned out to be a really, really great tool. And so, one of the things that we have found is that women will engage with the app in the wee hours. So, you know, between, say, midnight and 2 a.m maybe they're up for a feeding in the middle of the night and they just open their phone and they engage with the app it is designed to really almost be an engagement tool to offer information to offer resources to you know tell a few jokes you know create a little humor and lightness and so the thing that we found from our members who are using the app is that it really is addressing a need and some of those needs that have come up even include, say, for example, women who have experienced a pregnancy loss, which is often an overlooked group of women who need assistance. So connecting them with behavioral health services or counseling for their grief. The other thing that we've found is that women will engage with the app to find uh, things like food or rides to the doctor we have also incorporated our value-added services into that app. Did you know that we offer uh, home-delivered meals for women in our health plan? Have you taken advantage of that value-added services? If not, this is how you get it. Did you know that we have rides or did you know that we could connect you to a resource that can help you with your rent? And so it really has been a great tool that, you know, folks can use on their own time. We're kind of meeting them where they are and addressing their needs in a really unique way. And it's, it's been highly successful. We're really proud of that.
0: And it's a very targeted need for a very targeted population segment. Let's take a quick break. And I'd like to acknowledge our partners and sponsors, Be well. And if you like this podcast, rate us on whatever favorite podcast platform you're listening on. And if you're interested in listening to the archives, visit us at thebigunlock.com. With that, back to the conversation. I've had the uh, uh, CEO of PCCI, the Portland Center for Clinical Innovation, which is also a sister organization of yours. He's talked about some very interesting and fascinating work that he and his team do, Steve Miff, and he and his team do in regards to Really, looking at risk factors for uh, things like preterm uh, births and so on, and so forth. can you talk to a little bit of that? I'm assuming part of that work relates to your work as well.
1: Indeed, it does. We work quite closely with PCCI, and they have pioneered some programs with the health plan to address uh, kids with asthma as well as preterm birth. And so, some of the things that they are doing with us is to identify those members who are in need of additional help with their disease state, or maybe to take a look at how do we predict, say, for example, preterm birth? Are there indicators that will help us to prevent, say, a second preterm birth? And so we have refined our, especially the preterm birth tool over time to say, you know, what have we learned from this iteration? How can we change the algorithm to identify more women who may be at risk? And is there another factor that we can insert into that algorithm to improve our results even more? With the pediatric asthma program, they've really helped us to take a look at what are those factors that can contribute to exacerbation of their asthma? Are there things that we can do either in an interaction with the member or with the patient or the family to enhance their knowledge of their medication utilization? Or are there environmental factors, say, in their neighborhood or in their apartment complex or in the house that they live in? How can we partner the PCCI data with our disease management vendor to identify who we need to actually go out and visit in the home? And is there something that we can do, say, for example, partner with the Dallas Housing Authority to, or the city to say perhaps there's a code violation in the location where they live that needs mold remediation. Or perhaps they need some type of you know, environmental change, uh, pest control, things like that, so that we can remove that environmental trigger for their exacerbated asthma. So it really is a unique way to use the data to then create an action to improve the outcomes.
0: And I couldn't help but notice that uh, most of the data that you refer to is, is more in the nature of social determinants than clinical or medical data. So in the work that you've done with PCCI and in the analytics work that you've invested in, can you share with us one or two nuggets that you've learned that otherwise you might not have learned?
1: I think that one of the things that we have learned is that all of these factors go together. You can eliminate or at least minimize one factor, but then another pops up. (laughs) So you, you really do have this iterative process of addressing one need or one factor, and then the next will appear. And the data will help you to identify the next factor that you need to address. And so I think that it it is a continuous learning and that continuous improvement process. And just by using that data, refining that data, looking at the next option to address, like it is just a continuous learning process and a highly collaborative one, you know, really taking a look at what data do we have? How can we use it? How can we develop? conclusions from this data? And how can we incorporate it into our day-to-day work?
0: All of this also raises the question, who pays for all this? You're investing a lot in technology, you're investing a lot in data and analytics. Can you talk to us about the economics
1: of all this? Sure, that is one of the things that we struggle with. We are always on the receiving end of, hey, have I got a great idea for you? Or have I got a great product for you? And so one of the things that the strategy department does is helps the rest of the organization really value whether this is really a good deal for us or not. Is there an ROI? Is that you know an, an actual dollar amount that we can quantify? Is there a clinical benefit to this program? One of the things that we were presented with recently was an opportunity to look at a a maternal intervention, sort of a disease management strategy. And so the proposal looked like, you know, we can save you millions and millions of dollars, but it's also going to cost you millions of dollars. And so we really dug into our own data to see if, you know, do we really have that many women in our health plan with that particular type of issue? So You know, we were really able to go in and sort of fact check that proposal and really decided that that probably wasn't our best expenditure to make. So we have tried to refine that process over time to really look at the offerings that we get with a critical eye to see if it really is a good expense. Because our funds are limited and we really do have to be very thoughtful about where we put our funds so that we're not just sort of taking a chance, taking a risk, taking a gamble, but we really do want to assess those opportunities to see if it makes good business sense.
0: So if a startup founder with an interesting solution that could apply to your population wants to reach out and uh, share their story and their offering with you, what's your advice to them before they even approach you?
1: I would say make a good business case and make sure that it is based in reality. Because one of the things that I'm going to ask is, you know, if if you tell me you're going to save me $10 million, I'm going to dig into, well, how did you come up with that amount? Which members are you going to affect? What types of interventions would this take? Who's going to make those interventions? How is this going to work? And it's always like, like, you're going to have to prove it to me. You're really going to have to have some solid details behind it. And there has to be some homework to it. And how is it that you can do this for me, but I can't do this for me? Because in some cases, I often wonder, well, couldn't I just take that and do that internally? You know, because it, it's essentially a make by decision, right? So you're going to have to convince me that I need to buy it versus make it. And is there some special sauce that you have that I don't have? So I think those are the kinds of questions that I would ask. And I think that it behooves someone who's who's trying to really convince someone to buy their product, what's in it for me? How am I going to benefit from this? And how can you show me that that cost is going to pay off?
0: And where does your patient figure in all this? You've got a low-income population. They are going to be users of the application. We talk so much about the emerging digital divide. You know, we're building all these, you know, cool tools and digital health solutions and so on. But is it serving the needs of those that it's meant for, or is it exacerbating the divide? You know, there's a lot of debate around this. How do you factor that question into your decision-making and, How do you make it easy for your population to adopt this solution, knowing that they're looking for digital solutions, as you you mentioned early on?
1: Yes. So, one of the things that we have always asked, is this tool or is this digital intervention especially going to be something that is going to cost our member money? So, is it going to require more data? Is it going to require more bandwidth? Are they going to have to? pay for a service in some way. Certainly during the pandemic, we heard a lot about, you know, sort of digital deserts and whether low-income pockets of communities had access to the internet or to data. And so that was one of the questions that we asked PICS, for example. Can anyone with any model of phone use this? Are there barriers to engaging with this digital option. And what we found, especially with that one, is that there were very few barriers and it was very easy to use. And it was open to lots of different types of phones, whether they were old or new. So there were just very few barriers. And so that led us to really engage with them because that removing those barriers is key.
0: Yeah, and so making uh, these applications and everything data-light as much as possible, making them backward compatible with devices, and finally even subsidizing some of these costs, Uh, I imagine that that is in the mix as well. Do you end up considering all of these options? For instance, do you subsidize some of the costs as well
1: to your patients? One of the things that we do offer as one of our value-added services is the Lifeline program. And so we try to encourage our members to take advantage of these federal programs that are available to get access to uh, data, phones, and that type of thing so that they can engage. And then also looking, uh, for example, across our provider networks. So for example, some of our pediatric providers already have a digital option. And so working with them to make sure that we connect our members to that information. Parkland as a system uses Epic and we have care everywhere and there are digital ways to engage with our providers. They're offering telehealth services. And so we wanna make sure that we communicate that to our members to make sure that they understand what's available to them out there. And then how do we get them the tools Certainly with our health system, one of the things that we have talked with them about is how to bring sort of telehealth services out to the community in a location where the community gathers. So rec centers, community centers, FQHCs, different locations out in the community, if they have space and equipment, we can assist them with setting up those digital hubs. So that, you know, that that is one way that I would say it's not a direct subsidy, but it is a creation of that access point. So trying to think innovatively and trying to identify those locations where the community gathers so that, that they have sort of this automatic and inherent access to it.
0: Fantastic. What a fascinating story. Paula, we're going to have to leave it there today. We're at the end of our time. But it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you so much for coming on our show and sharing all of your insights and all the very best to you and your team.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Once again,
0: I'd like to thank our partners, BeWell for their sponsorship and their support. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We invite you to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Healthcare Digital Transformation Leader. Write to us at info at thebigunlock.com with your feedback and questions.